You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Body IO FM with your host, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. Hey, Kiefer. Uh, we, uh, as always want to mention our sponsors, Hylete Athletic Wear. I should really put that in the show introduction because it'd make it a lot easier because I almost forget half the time, uh, to introduce them, but you can find them on the website. And on today's show, we have Dr. William Walsh, uh, who actually, I, I unfortunately didn't get the chance to read his book, but Rocky did. Rocky made sure that... Uh, he read up on Dr. Walsh and actually was geeking out talking to me about him. So I know Rocky's very excited. <laughs> I'm very excited because it has to do with uh, a lot of disease pre- prevention, particularly for um, what we normally think of as uh, brain brain issues or sometimes psychological issues. Uh, so, Dr. Walsh, thanks for being on the show. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, so... Why don't, if, if you could give our audience a little introduction about yourself and what you do, I'm, I'm not sure how familiar our audience is with you, and they definitely should be. So if you can just give us a quick, well, not too quick, but a little elevator pitch. Okay, I'd be happy to. Um, my name is Dr. Bill Walsh. I'm in, um, my organization is the Walsh Research Institute, and we're located in Naperville, Illinois. And um, we, my organization is a not-for-profit public charity. We're a 501c3. And our specialties uh, lie in, um, in brain chemistry, brain science, uh, and, and um, basically uh, I ran a clinic, a not-for-profit clinic, uh, for, more, for more than 15 years. And I've seen more than 30,000 patients. And our focus has been on helping people uh, with natural therapies, uh, people who might have anxiety, depression, attention deficit disorder. Um, along the way, I've also worked with a lot of famous athletes, and I've, I've been, um, uh, I worked with, for example, a lot of um, NBA basketball players, Olympic athletes, uh, heavyweight champion boxers, um, which might be of interest to, to you, John, uh, in trying to uh, help them with athletic enhancement. But basically, we're best we're we're um, engaged in scientific research, and I have a international uh, team that travels around the world training doctors, psychiatrists, and other physicians how to use these natural therapies, how to help somebody with depression, perhaps without using a drug. And and brain science has advanced so far in the last few years, especially this new field of epigenetics, that we we now have a roadmap or a way to help most people with mental problems without having to resort to foreign molecules, a.k.a. drug medications. So that's sort of a, a summary. We're quite well known throughout the world. Uh, our goal is in the next five years to train at least 1,000 doctors, and we've just been... For example, I've been to Australia several times. We've been to Ireland, England, Norway. We've just started training doctors in the USA, and um, our second training is going to be in October in the Chicago area for for physicians and psychiatrists and showing them how they can can use our our techniques, which basically is advanced nutrient therapy. So that's sort of a capsule summary of who we are and what we do. So, Dr. Walsh, you know, I, I actually listened to the book. I, uh, although I think that's a different process than actually reading a book, but I, you know, I, I do a lot of driving, so that that was the process. I kind of digested your material, and I was really, really intrigued by what I what I heard. Um, could you maybe talk about some of the issues that you see with these patients in terms of uh, what you find from an epigenetic standpoint, and what are some of the things that you look for? Epigenetics has two parts. Basically, for those who aren't totally familiar with it, uh, it's, it's a hot new field. And, and if anybody uh, who listens to this has, has never heard of epigenetics, believe me, they will soon because it's, it's starting to revolutionize uh, a lot of uh, physical health and mental health issues. And we're now beginning to understand why these things occur. Basically, epigenetics has to do with gene regulation. We've all got 
about 23,000 genes in our, in our DNA. And uh, every gene has got just one job, and that's to make a protein, a very special, unique protein. And this includes small proteins and enormous proteins, and this is where enzymes come from. And uh, up until the last five or six years in, in nutrient uh, science and nutritional science and therapies, we've been uh, missing something really important. We, we, we've known a lot about diet, and we've known a lot about how to, how to um, individualize diet because the best diet for one person is not the best for the other. We've also known uh, a lot about what happens to our nutrients once they get in the body and the different processes and reactions that go on. What's been missing are the genetically expressed chemicals, the enzymes and the proteins that come from our DNA. Uh, and, and anyway, it has to, and what, what happens is that uh, has a lot to do with methylation. You may have heard a lot about people who might be undermethylated or overmethylated or, or who may have a methylation disorder, and it turns out that has an enormous amount to do with mental health and physical health. Uh, for example, uh, just to give you an example that, that might be interesting to you, John, um, for example, undermethylated people make up most of the world's great athletes, and people are under, and it has a lot to do with for, formation of um, creatine. And, uh, you know, there are some people who tend to be slender, wiry people and others who tend to be very muscular. That has a lot to do with epigenetics and, and how their genes are regulated really in the womb. But then there are, we now know that, um, that most of cancer is, most cancer forms are epigenetic in, in, in which an environmental insult changes this, these methyl switches or the regulation uh, that either turns on or turns off a particular gene. And we know that most of heart disease relates to epigenetics, but almost every aspect of our, of our existence has to do with gene regulation. And um, anyway, it's, we've now gotten to the point where we already understand uh, a lot about what specific nutrients can do in terms of maybe regulating neurotransmitters or, or enhancing uh, health of your GI tract or to imp uh, have to do with your immune function. Um, it's, it's just a whole new world, it's, and we're learning more all the time, but we already know enough to already utilize this new field of epigenetics to help people with mental problems. For example, 50 years ago, the great Abram Hoffer um, uh, was the first person to demonstrate that nutrients can have a dramatic, powerful, uh, beneficial effect on people who are schizophrenic. And uh, he had a theory for why this, why niacin was helping these people. Is he, he found that large amounts of niacin actually caused a lot of the schizophrenics to become quite normal. Well, we didn't know really what the mechanism was until epigenetics came along, and now we know that epigenetics is basically um, uh, the 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 epigenetic function of of niacin is comes out to be a dopamine reuptake promoter, and it, and it reduces dopamine activity, which for a paranoid schizophrenic is exactly what they need. We know a number of nutrients now that, that have a lot to do with, with mental health, and we know that uh, it now looks like autism is an epigenetic disorder, that schizophrenia is an epigenetic disorder, just like cancer and heart disease. And what does that mean? That means that sometime uh, uh, during life, a person gets an environmental insult that is so severe that it alters gene expression. So, for example, um, post-traumatic stress. Let's say somebody either in the military service or whatever uh, has extraordinary stress. We know that that can change permanently gene expression, which means it can change your body chemistry and change your brain chemistry possibly in a very nasty way, and, and since these changes, these epigenetic changes, these methylation alterations, they survive cell division. So once this happens, once you have the onset of this condition, it doesn't go away, and you have to cope with it the rest of your life. That's, that's sort of a, of a, of a, of a you know, maybe say epigenetics 101, or just a summary of, of what it is, but it's extraordinarily important. Eventually, epigenetics research is going to be the cure for cancer. And it may eventually enable us to eliminate 
all kinds of illnesses, uh, both physical and mental. So I'm curious. So I would just, uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, I was, I was going to ask, I know I've, um, I've looked into some of the effects of uh, basically high anxiety mothers and during conception, uh, their children often, and this was, this was done in my study. So, um, and in the mice, they found that uh, there was a carryover from that anxiety disorder into the children of the mother. And what they found was that it was a direct methylation problem. They actually injected chemicals into the offspring's brains that de that were able to demethylate uh, whatever the the condition was, and the mice all of a sudden returned to normal. So, if we see that through female introduction of possibly stress hormones when cortisol uh, is so intense, or that the placental barrier breaks down to where cortisol can affect the fetus. Uh, could we see in males that, let's say, there's some introduction of a dietary or environmental insult that causes methylation? Could a male then, since we're constantly producing uh, new sperm, could a male p- pass that trait on permanently to their offspring? Um, basically, the we're now learning that what's really dominant is the methylation status in the womb especially during the first four weeks of gestation when that tiny little fetus is beginning to differentiate into different organs and arms and legs develop. Um, And the reason is that you have to have different genes expressing proteins every part of your body. Mm -hmm. The the complication is that we've got about 100 billion uh, uh, cells in the body, and every cell has got identical DNA. So you've got the potential for making 23,000 or so proteins but you don't want, but some of the, you want different chemicals, different proteins in your liver and your kidney and whatever. And so this all has to be, and it all has to do with methylation because it's, what happens is that the undesirable chemicals or proteins are shut off by having uh, methylation occur near that particular gene. So the, the, but you also have the direct genetic contribution from both male and female. You're right. The the uh, females, uh, the mothers, are more dominant with respect to this, and and really the the methylation environment in the womb has a lot to do with things that can that can be different in terms or or, or you might say that might go wrong. You can have serious um, insults during that period uh, that could that can cause all kinds of um, um, you might say deformities or. Are, are things that go really wrong in the child and can cause disorders. But once those methyl marks, so they're called bookmarks, once the methylation occurs along the DNA of the, of the baby, of the fetus, they're in there like concrete, and you really can't hardly change them. And that determines your characteristics um, of really the rest of your life. Fortunately, there's a second epigenetic mechanism called histone modification, and, and that's what we're able to use by altering with methylation therapies and other therapies to, um, to really help people with uh, both mental and physical problems. And I think that's what, what the, if, if somebody were to inject uh, or alter methylation in the brain, it would be that second type of, um, of epigenetic functioning because this, this would not change the basic methyl bookmarks that, that uh, determine your gene expression. Okay, so I, I think that's a very important point for the audience, and I just learned that recently myself. That is that is essentially how the different tissues of the body know how to express the genes for that tissue is through this epigenetic process, correct? The Only the correct that's exactly genes. exactly right. Yeah, okay. Well, one thing that's really unfortunate is that uh, I've known a lot of women that as soon as they found out they were pregnant, they, they stopped smoking and they stopped drinking alcohol and they went on a really healthy diet. And, and the, the sad thing is that it's most of this methylation, most of the, uh, the, this, uh, these gene expression uh, decisions happen before the woman knows she's pregnant. It mostly uh, the most important time is between 18 and 22 days of gestation. So, so it's really too late for them to, to get their act together with diet and, and, and that sort of thing. They really, really, it needs to be done for a woman who might become pregnant because they need to do it before they become pregnant. 
Uh, okay. Uh, Rocky, I cut you off earlier. What was, what was your comment? Um, I think I lost my train of thought. Um, oh, so, you know, I guess as a practitioner, I'm a family physician. So as a practitioner, um, trying to go from bench to, to clinic, so to speak, I would assume it's probably difficult. Uh, and that's why your work is what your work is in terms of trying to assess and treat patients. One would think that, is anybody working on gene expression tests to kind of look at this stuff and maybe provide um, maybe a less complicated way of looking at these patients? Well, uh, there's, there's, there's really a lot of this epigenetic research going on, gene, gene uh, studies. In fact, myself, uh, what I've been doing uh, this week is is getting together a experiment collaboration I have with a with a uh, renowned genetic team in Australia, and we're going to do we're, we're planning to do a master experiment to to do two things. Number one, to demonstrate that schizophrenia actually is an epigenetic disorder, and then we're also going to be identifying the genes that are misbehaving, because you have to do that first. You have to find out which genes have the wrong methylation characteristics. So then you can develop therapies to reset it and, and to normalize these things. And, um, and we're just one of uh, probably at least 100 groups that are out there doing this kind of work. And the, the knowledge is just expanding and expanding. And it's going to lead directly to treatment. And, and really the most exciting thing is that I can see a time in the future when a newborn baby is born. They'll do, uh, they will do a, a study of their genome, not just the DNA, but the epigenome, the, they'll also be able to find out the, the methylation, uh, you might say, switches that turn on or turn off or speed up or slow down a gene, by, which means speed up or slow down that particular protein production. Uh, what they'll be able to do, they, they'll be able to scan this newborn baby, find out whether they're prone to, say, autism or schizophrenia or, or diabetes or a whole range of conditions, including cancer and heart disease, and I, I believe the time is going to come when they'll be able to normalize and, and fix all those deviant um, methylation marks, and, and so that, that, I think, is the hope of the future, just to prevent all of these really nasty disorders that cause so much pain and misery. People are not going to be all the same. They're still going to have their own innate characteristics, their own personality, their own body type, that that. Those, change, those differences are still going to be there. But I think this is going to be a great way to prevent all of these disorders or many of these disorders. That's, it's coming. It probably, I don't know if it's going to take 50 years or 15 years, but I, I just think that uh, myself and other researchers are doing what we can to speed this process up because it's really going to benefit the world. Well, I know at least in our practice, we're actually using one genomic expression uh, test for obstructive coronary disease. So some of this is trickling out, um, and we find it very valuable. But I find it intriguing to use. We usually use this as a marker of disease, but then having to go and you know treat the patient, you know, either through nutrition, lifestyle, or medication, is not the most efficient way of looking at it. And so it'd be interesting to see if applying some of the work that you've done in these patients with cardiovascular risk and then maybe rechecking this gene expression score to see if it changes would be a really neat thing to look at. The, the, the good news is that, yes, you, you, you're sort of stuck with the, these disorders uh, because these methyl marks that are on your DNA itself are really in there, like I said, they're, they're in there like concrete and, and they're not going to be changed easily. And we don't have therapies that for changing them. But we know with this process of histone modification, we can actually treat these people either with nutrients or with certain drugs, and we can, we can fix a lot of those problems uh, right now, treat a lot of those problems today without having to change these methyl marks. I have a question about uh, the could after the gestation period, after the, the baby's born, uh, is it possible, yes. and, and I've, heard a, a, I've heard this a couple times, but I haven't, had res- I haven't seen research to back it up, um, but there was this argument that potentially some of the obesity and skyrocketing obesity we see in children is actually an epigenetic cause. Some sort of dietary insult was the argument that occurs very, very early in life, say the first two years, depending on what they're fed, that activates 
or turns off the limiting genes uh, for body, body fat accumulation, so on and so forth. And that's why they're basically stuck with this issue the rest of their life. We've, uh, in those first two years, kind of changed the phenotype in what's going to be expressed. And, you know, now for the rest of their life, they're going to have this challenge. And I know this is uh, a, a little off center of uh, brain chemistry, but is this, is this something you've seen or know about or have seen hinted at in the research? The answer is yes. Uh, we've known for more than 20, 30 years that some children, depending on their nutrition as very young children, by the time they're three or four, the, the people who have a tendency for obesity uh, have a, a much greater um, population of fat cells and they tend to be larger fat cells. And uh, a lot of people, a lot of experts think this may be epigenetic, that it may have occurred early on in that first 20 days of gestation, or maybe uh, you can change these, these, these methyl marks can be changed um, um, after, you know, after they're set. And, and the histone modification part, um, if that, that is affected greatly by diet, and, and that can set a, a person's, um, I think, can, can cre- you can create um, obesity tendencies, uh, I'm sure, uh, in those first few years. Uh, now, whether it's strictly epigenetic or some other mechanism, uh, we're not quite sure of that, but it might very well be epigenetic. Right. I assume there's probably a combination of factors. For example, I would imagine the possible epigenetic, epigenetic effects give them the propensity to become obese or overweight and then our dietary guidelines or dietary introduction after that is what that is what unfortunately allows them to reach the potential of that new phenotype that they're expressing yeah that's true and and also we've learned that uh that methylation has got a lot to do with the proper diet for example if you're under methylated you need a high protein diet uh, but if you're overmethylated, and about 8% of the population are overmethylated, uh, they thrive on a vegetarian diet. And, and then, of course, the whether uh, some people need more carbs than others. And it depends. There's a lot of biochemical individuality. And, uh, you know, I think there was a, a famous philosopher said once, one man's meat is another man's poison. And in a sense, that's correct. And, and one of the challenges is to find out what is the ideal diet for a specific person and to, to learn what's best for ourselves. And a lot of people find this out on their own. There are people who go on a vegetarian diet, for example, and, and find they just feel terrific and they feel healthier in, in all respects. Others do the same thing and, and believe they get worse, and I think they do. It all depends on a person's innate biochemistry. So about 8% are overmethylated. Uh, what what percent are under-methylated, like for the you know at people who are prone to be more athletic? Well, I have uh, I think I have the world's greatest chemistry database for methylation, and um, we've tested more than thirty thousand people. Twenty two percent is the number we come up with of the people that we've seen. Twenty two percent are under-methylated, eight percent are over-methylated, and the other seventy percent do not have a methylation abnormality or disorder. Ah, that's, so about two thirds of people are, are don't have this issue. That's that's really interesting. So that's that's why we would see people who are more focused with on, only working with athletes, uh, really harping on this. You know, eating a lot of protein, and that's what they see benefits their clients, without realizing that that might be a specific characteristic of their clients that thrive on that higher protein diet. I, I, my, I started working with professional golfers, and then later uh, I, I, did, I tested a lot of the, uh, the Chicago Bulls basketball players. Uh, I've done heavyweight champion um, um, boxers, um, and Olympic athletes were really interesting. But actually, um, most of them are undermethylated because part of being undermethylated, it, it, it results in strong will, competitiveness. I mean, Michael Jordan, for heaven's sakes, is probably the, one of the most under-methylated people in the world <laughs> but with his extraordinary uh, competitiveness and his will to win and to succeed. Most great athletes are, uh, are under-methylated. Virtually all long-distance runners, competitive runners, are under-methylated. And these are perfectionists who just want to win and to be the very best they can be. Over-methylated people um, tend to be better physically in terms of they tend to have more muscle mass and many of them have great ability, but they don't have the, the, the mental desire and the competitiveness. And um, 
So it's really interesting working with the different people. We also found that the really, really tall basketball players often had a, an amino acid dif- disorder. Uh, I worked with a, a couple of uh, seven-foot basketball players who had uh, their quick twitch muscles weren't very good, so they, w- <clears throat> they weren't able to snatch a rebound and react quickly. And we found out that that um, that arginine is one of the keys to to one of the reasons why they actually are so tall. But it also is one of the reasons why they have difficulty putting on muscle mass. Uh, we call it the, the minute bowl syndrome, that they they're so uh, undermethylated that they can't create creatine and therefore have low muscle mass. It's really interesting um, studying both the mental and the physical. But methylation has got so much to do with this, and. Um, now, a lot of people are focusing on undermethylation, and they're focusing on this one-carbon cycle, which, Rocky, I understand you probably know a lot about. And, and they're looking at enzymes and SNPs and MTHFR and, and ways in which the, the production of your methyl, which is really SAMI, S-adenosylmethionine, which is a methionine, uh, you might say a, uh, a form of methionine that readily is unstable and gives up its methyl for all these important reactions, um, so people are focusing on, on ways in which methylation can, can, um, can be reduced and impaired, but nobody seems to be focusing on those factors, those genetic SNPs or mutations that cause overmethylation. And most of that has to do with the creatine um, pathway because that, that's where about 70% of all your methyl is used. I mean, we got like 80 or 90 really important methylation reactions in the body but more than two-thirds of all the methyl is consumed in that reaction. Well, if, if that's impaired, if for some reason uh, you've got um, genetic SNPs that, that weaken uh, that, you've got a lot of extra SAMI or methyl floating around looking for something to do, and they're overmethylated. And this, this is uh, it's very interesting. People that have this tend to be really good at mathematics. They're, they tend to be better at, uh, at music and at, at a very artistic they tend to be unusually friendly people and make wonderful neighbors. A lot of them get into fields like um, nursing or that sort of thing or become counselors. Uh, they care often more about other people than themselves, uh, as opposed to the undermethylated people who are the driven per- perfectionists trying to, to be the best. It's, it's all very interesting, both uh, in, every, in every, any, any aspect of your life. We've done a lot of CEOs and and top driven uh, successful business people and um, lawyers, doctors, scientists, um, maybe even um, people who do shows like you. I, I would bet anything that both of you are undermethylated. Um, <laughs> but uh, and that's usually a good thing. Most people who are undermethylated fail through life rather well and have high accomplishment. And they usually have a family history of high accomplishment. But about about one out of every five undermethylated people runs into trouble. And the way they run into trouble is with obsessive compulsive disorders. They tend to be more easily hooked on smoking, alcohol, or illegal drugs. God help them if they go to casinos because they'll get hooked on gambling. Women might develop shopping disorders. Uh, and, and it has a lot to do with anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, and even schizophrenia. Um, so we're not sure yet why some people, why why most undermethylated people are just fine, and about 20% of them have a methylation that develop real problems. But what we do know is if you fix their methylation, if you fix the people who are sick, uh, and and correct their methylation, most of them get a lot better, and many of them become completely okay again. We also it's not only methylation. We have to also look at metal metabolism. Uh, most of the people I've seen that were uh, that had problems with either physical or mental health, uh, the number one imbalance we find is zinc, zinc deficiency. That has so much to do with physical and mental health. We've had a lot of athletes who became dramatically better once we simply normalized their zinc level. Um, um, it was especially useful for famous... There's some famous golfers we saw many years ago who were who were known to have great skills, but they would always they would always collapse in a in a tight race if they were in the last couple of holes and they they had a chance of winning. They would always they they couldn't handle the stress. Hmm. Uh, zinc has a lot to do with stress. And another thing that 
really interesting to me. The first thing that really surprised me when I got into clinical work was to learn that it's that yes, there are nutrient deficiencies that almost everyone has. If you were to study any any human being, we'd probably find out of these 300 important nutrients, there's probably a half dozen that because of genetics they are deficient in, and they would benefit from many times the RDA of those particular nutrients if they only knew which ones they were. <clears throat> but what we learned was that uh, these same people would probably have nutrient overloads because of genetics. And we learned that clinically, in terms of depression, anxiety, uh, learning disorders, violent children, it's really the nutrients that are an overload that cause more mischief than the deficiencies. So uh, when people ask me, what would, be a, you know, what would be a really great multivitamin? I think the answer is none of them, really, because uh, you can do as much harm as you do good if you just stuff somebody full of amino acids, vitamins, and minerals because you'd be giving almost anyone some of these things that, that would make them worse. And so you've got the good, the good ones fighting the bad ones. And I think the, the answer, again, is biochemical individuality and to identify what is ideal for a given person. And it's critically important if you've got depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, or something like that. This, this is really interesting because it's not you know, a new idea to try to individualize things, but at a high level... There's always this attitude that, you know, everybody's basically the same and that's why we have RDAs and that's why we have, you know, a base calorie recommendation for people, you know, on height, weight, male, female. Um, But what you're saying here is in complete contradiction to that in a lot of ways. There might be some overarching generalities we can make, but really if we're looking for optimum health, just not physically, but also mentally, uh, we really need to hit a level of individualization that, you know, before now hasn't been possible, it sounds like. You know, it sounds like this is kind of a new frontier of how to individualize on a very specific scale. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. This is uh, uh, flies in the face of, of what you might think is mainstream beliefs regarding nutrition and, and, and mental health and diet. Uh, but actually, it's reality. It's absolute reality, and, and uh, we learned that by working and, and getting the metabolic status and all, doing all these lab tests on, on 30,000 people. And uh, we, 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 we know what healthy is, and we see a lot of chemical imbalances throughout, and, and almost all human beings uh, have some nutrients that they would benefit from if they only knew which ones they were, gen- they were low in because of genetics or epigenetics. But they, but they also need to know about the overloads. For example, uh, one example is methyl itself. If a person is under-methylated, they thrive on, on SAMI and methionine. They absolutely thrive on it because it, it helps normalize their methylation. But if they're over-methylated and you gave them uh, SAMI or, or methionine supplements, they would get worse. They do get worse. Another example is folic acid. Any form of folate, whether it's folic acid, um, folinic acid or the, the now popular methylfolate, um, these, these are extremely good at helping people who are under methylated have their methylation normalized. The problem is that, that folic acid has a dramatic impact on epigenetics. And folic acid tends to lower serotonin activity. So one of the complications is if you, if you have a person who has anxiety or depression or even a behavior disorder and they're under-methylated, if you give them folic acid, their methylation will improve and the patient will get worse because the epigenetic effect of acid overwhelms the benefits of improving methylation. It's something that, that it's a mistake that many nutritional scientists and, and clinicians uh, make today. They might do a uh, a 23andMe genetic test and find out that a person's got uh, weakness in their in their in their methylation cycle that produces the SAMI that 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 provides methylation, but they they and and so they focus on uh, fixing the methylation, but and it works for everybody unless they have a neurotransmitter issue involving low serotonin. In that case the people will get worse. And so I keep running into these uh, really terrific nutritional uh, clinicians out there who are saying, why is it that, that uh, I get these under-methylated patients and I give them Deplin or, or methylfolate 
and they get dramatically worse. Is it, is it a transition problem? No, it's, it's what they're doing is they're um, making their depression or their anxiety worse. I'd assume that's why you have to pair it with probably an SSRI and therapy. Uh, well, no, you go one direction or the other. The question is, uh, are, if, if in, with mental illnesses, that's, that's a bit different. When you're talking about the brain, which is our, our main focus, when we ev- evaluate a patient, by the time we've done our medical history, which really gives us a lot of clues as to, as to methylation, met- metal metabolism, whether they are their malabsorbers and you know all the various factors, um, we try to to as best we can identify which neurotransmitter systems are not functioning properly. And once we have that, we now are able to, with with a with a nutrient therapy to to adjust this and to we now have the ability to increase or decrease. Uh, activity is at serotonin receptors uh, because of the epigenetic knowledge, and and um, so we know we know what can tend to enhance it and what can tend to diminish it. It has it really has the interesting thing is it has almost it has very little to do with the amount of serotonin present. A lot of nutritionists will will be testing for serotonin and trying to in, increase the amount of serotonin. Well, that's not the name of the game. What what really dominates neurotransmission and brain activity is reuptake. This process of reuptake that which which the um, pharma, pharmaceutical people learned a long time ago, um, back in the 1970s, uh, people were trying to develop drugs that would increase your serotonin. Until they realized what really dominates it is the amount of reuptake. That is the speed with which. The serotonin, once it's, uh, once it's uh, ejected into a synapse, the speed with which it goes back to that original cell, which is a really, can be a really a rapid process, and, and it has to do with the genetic expression of, of the special proteins that, um, that are the passageways for the, the returning, returning serotonin. And now we can control that. We, with, with nutrient therapy, we can now increase or decrease the genetic expression of those very transport proteins. Uh, it's a little bit complicated. I know this is a bit geeky maybe for a lot of your listeners, right. but this has everything to do with mental health. And folate, folate uh, methionine, uh, SAMI, biotin, uh, niacin, there's, there's a small number, really a handful of nutrients that really sort of dominate mental health, which is a heck of a good thing. If we had to, you know, there are more than 300 nutrients that are really important in the human body, including fatty acids and everything else. And it would be awful if we had, if, if they all were really, really important in brain function, if we had to try to test for them all and then develop a therapy to normalize them all. We, it, the, the good news is that there's only a handful of maybe six or seven nutrient factors that really dominate mental health. And so uh, we're able to do a relatively inexpensive test protocol to identify people who might have imbalances in those um, those particular nutrient systems, and, and then the treatment can be also relatively uh, sparse. We don't need to give people uh, 47 different nutrients. More typically, it might be more like five or 10, and, and that's really terrific to know. I could assume you can also decrease medication burden as well significantly. Yeah, what we do uh, with, say, somebody with severe depression, uh, who might, people might be suicidal or extraordinary anxiety or agoraphobic where they don't like to be out with other, you know, in public, or even people with bipolar or, or, or whatever. And, and, and one group that really does well are people with postpartum depression, which is a mental metabolism disorder, or, or violent children. That's, that's one of the easiest groups of people to help. Uh, most of them come to us on a medication. With, with, the, with the children, it's often Adderall or Ritalin or something like that. Um, but, uh, but most of them, most people come to us on either uh, some kind of an antidepressant or one of these new atypical antipsychotic medications that are now filtering through all the way down to two-year-old autistic children. Um, so what we do is we keep them on their medication for a while. We do both treatments together. We do our nu- nutrient therapy treatment together while they're on their medication. And then after, it takes about two or three months usually to get the full effect of our nutrient therapy. And at that point, uh, what we then suggest is that they, with the help of their doctor, they, their psychiatrist or whoever's managing the meds, try to see, you know, try lower and lower levels of the medication, <coughs> excuse me, to, um, to determine the optimum levels of the medication. We are not really against drugs. 
But we, uh, and what we find is that for behavior disorders, for ADHD, for anxiety and depression, that um, what the families tell us is that they're at their very best with zero. They're able to throw away their medication and be just fine. 20% of them, about one out of five, say they lose a little something if they try to completely go off the medication. And we say, so be it. We just want them to be okay as best they can be. And, and uh, usually we get the, the, the medication level down so low that the side effects often just disappear. Um, with bi- severe bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, uh, our, with our present knowledge, we're finding that, we, can, we again, we, we, we have them stay on their medication for months while we do our nutrient therapy to try to adjust neurotransmission activity in a natural way. And, and again, we have them try lower and lower levels. But in, in the case of paranoid schizophrenia, for example, uh, usually it's a rare person who can go all the way to zero. We find that they need some medication support, but maybe instead of having four powerful medications at high doses, when, we're, when, we're, when all is said and done, they might have uh, one medication at a relatively low dose without side effects. So that's sort of the state of where we are now. Eventually, uh, I think as brain knowledge and brain science advances, uh, I think the need for drugs will just fade away. The problem with drug medications for mental mental issues is that they're foreign molecules. And by putting powerful foreign molecules in your brain, you do not achieve normalcy. You wind up with an abnormal condition. Yes, you might be able to overcome anxiety, or depression, but that person might uh, have no libido, or they might gain uh, 50 pounds, or um, they may not be as mentally sharp as they were, or their personality might change. That's always going to be a problem, because uh, they because uh, that's what side effects are basically. The, and the problem is that these these powerful uh, medications, these, these foreign molecules, alter so many parts of brain function. So eventually, what will happen? is uh, we are going to move toward uh, a new future, a new era in mental health and in psychiatry where we're going to learn how to normalize the brain and how to fix these problems with targeted, scientifically um, um, approached nutrient therapy. And, and uh, we're doing everything we can to speed that process up. And I think we're one of the, we're one of the pioneers in the world, apparently, our, my organization, in doing this. And our goal is in the next five years to train a thousand doctors to do these very therapies. And we're well on the way. We're, we're, we have our first 250 and uh, we're, we're, uh, we have programs uh, throughout the world training doctors. Uh, I just came from the American Psychiatric Association annual meeting where I gave a, a, a lecture to the, our, our, our psychiatrists. It's a, it's a big meeting of the year for psychiatry. 17,000 psychiatrists in one building that was a kind of a strange group, I have to say. Interesting group, a very dedicated people, but they're they are a bit different. Um, <laughs> and and they got all excited about our our approach for treating depression. Namely, that we we most people now believe if you got depression, that what you need to do is just uh, find a antidepressant that'll work, an, an SSRI, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor medication. Well, we have the world's biggest chemistry database for depression. About 800,000 uh, tests of blood and urine, and what we know is that depression is a name given to really five completely different disorders. Each one of them requires a different direction and has a different neurotransmitter abnormality. And, and so what we showed the psychiatrists at, at this annual meeting of the APA, that, that there's blood testing they can do, inexpensive blood testing that can guide their treatment. It can, guide, it can guide them with respect to what medication to use if they want to do a med. Um, for example, if they're under-methylated, uh, they're the ones who probably do nicely on an SSRI uh, antidepressant. But if a person's over-methylated, those are the patients that are going to get worse. And those are the people who, become, who can become a suicidal and they can become homicidal uh, if, the, if, if those people... Um, you know. So, so anyway... Uh, that, that's something that uh, psychiatrists and really a lot of doctors just want to learn how to do that, and it's not that difficult. We have these training programs. The, we call them uh, physician education workshops where we, we spend maybe five days with, with these doctors. We're going to have 40. We're going to have a group of 40 doctors in, in, in Chicago um, in, in October. 
by the time they're finished, they're going to be able to go right back to their practice and incorporate these methods immediately into their uh, into their medical practices. And we just we just did our first batch of uh, 23 doctors February, and we're hearing from most of them that they are really enthusiastic about the improvements they're seeing in their patients. Um, so that's really the, the what, what what our main effort is. I no longer do clinical work. My organization, uh, we're a very dedicated band of people in our in our public charity, and we're just trying to get these effective therapies uh, to as many people as we can throughout the world. Well, it's it's nice to hear that the psychiatric field is, is really open to what you're saying. It, it was my notion that this notion of targeted treatment for depression really wasn't something that was really well accepted before. It's not. And just to give you one example, we, we've now done more than 800 women with a history of uh, postpartum depression. And a lot of women with postpartum depression, because, uh, they might love children and want a baby, and, and uh, right after the baby is born, they have this disorder hit them. It can even be a postpartum psychosis. And, uh, and many of these women actually harm their children, even though they wanted children and loved them. Uh, we, we've now uh, found out clearly that for them, it's a metal metabolism disorder. They, it has to do with excessive levels of copper. During a woman's pregnancy, their copper level more than doubles because the baby needs that to help the little fetus grow rapidly and to get the vascularization, the, the, you know, to create new blood vessels and capillaries. Um, and, and so a woman's copper level in blood more than doubles during, in a normal situation during the nine months of her pregnancy. And as soon as that baby is born, within 24 hours, their copper, this excess copper is uh, supposed to leave and get them back to normal rather quickly. Some women don't have that ability, and we, now we understand why. Some people are born with a problem with uh, either ceruloplasmin, but more importantly, a protein called metallothionine. And those proteins have the job of regulating and normalizing and getting homeostasis for copper. And well, these, these, these women with postpartum depression, uh, most of them that we've seen were on a lot of different antidepressants, which didn't help them and didn't hurt them. But didn't, unfortunately, didn't help them. And but it takes about sixty to ninety days for us to normalize their copper levels. And and we have a, pro, a procedure for safely getting the excess copper out of their system. And based on outcome studies, which are open label outcome studies, uh, we're about ninety percent successful in, in in helping them. And we've had women who were depressed maybe twenty years for twenty entire years after uh, a baby was was born, or or maybe after the second or third child that that uh, for the first time are okay again. I mean, uh, the, the, um, the field of psychiatry uh, is not like the rest of medicine. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful high-tech medicine out there. I mean, if you have your hip replaced or if you've got a heart problem and need to get a stent or there, there's so, many, so much high-tech wonderful medicine out there, but God help you if you've got a psychiatric problem because that's still uh, sort of a black art trying very hard to become a science but it's still uh, not really a science. And you know you're in trouble when the experts in a field don't agree with each other. Um, they, they call economics a dismal science, and one of the reasons is they, they, there's all these different theories and the experts don't agree. We don't have that problem in physics and chemistry and, and, and in other fields. And really in a lot of fields of medicine, uh, the experts agree and, and uh, it becomes very high-tech and effective, but not yet. Not yet psychiatry, and that, that's an area. That's why we're focusing our efforts on that. Uh, I some of the things you're talking about with uh, particularly depression and some anxiety disorders. Uh, we've had clinicians on the show who've worked with uh, particularly people who are depressed and and have anxiety disorders, and they work and try to help them. And they've found, uh, and, and there's some evidence in the literature for this that you know for some people that you know, a, a very low carbohydrate ketogenic diet can have extremely beneficial effects. Uh, you know, a lot of times allowing these people, if they stick with the diet, uh, to very severely decrease their medication or stop using it altogether. And they feel this sense of normalcy and, and so on and so forth. And even in children, there's some evidence that it could help, um, with hyperactive disorders and attention deficit disorders. Do you do you see any correlation there between what possibly is happening with glucose metabolism in the brain, maybe interfering with 
some of these processes that look like or could exacerbate uh, methylation problems? Um, absolutely, yes. Uh, we have to always look at, at uh, in every patient we see, we have to evaluate with respect to possible malabsorption with food sensitivities, inability to, to completely break down certain kinds of foods. Like We, all, we also uh, we, we need to determine if, if they have um, um, glucose control problems. Uh, glucose discontrol is present in so many people. And even schizophrenics or depressives, uh, if you simply um, get somebody who tends toward especially low blood sugar, people who tend to be a, little, a bit on the hypoglycemic side, that will exacerbate and worsen all their symptoms. You can help a lot of these people just by giving them a, a better diet that gives them better glucose control. It's especially important for children who have attention deficit, hyperactivity, or learning disorders. Um, we, we've learned that they're, they're about the easiest people to help. I mean, every time in our clinic, say, an 8- or a 10-year-old uh, violent child would come to our clinic, we would relax and smile because we knew it was going to be very easy to identify what was wrong, and we, were gonna, we knew that they were going to get better if they, would, if they could comply with our treatment. At least 90% of them would. And a lot of that had to do with making sure they have a, a really good diet. I mean, there are, some people, there, there are some people who, because of genetics and epigenetics, are sort of invulnerable to diet. We probably all know some people who are very successful and very healthy who eat a terrible diet, and they're sort of invulnerable to it because their body systems are, are so efficient at taking whatever nutrients they get and, and still maintaining them at a high level. But I'd say most people are vulnerable to a bad diet. Some people are extraordinarily vulnerable to a bad diet and need special diets. And again, it's, it's individuality. I mean, we have, the people are different. And, and, and uh, we find a lot of people who, who are, are extraordinarily sensitive to certain kinds of diets. Um, and again, as I said before, some people thrive on a vegetarian diet. Others need a, um, a high-protein diet. I've never seen anybody who really needed a, a high-carbohydrate diet, except for primarily athletes or people who are interested in real physical fitness or building muscle. Uh, they're the ones that need to know how to, how to handle carbohydrates properly. I know with our Chicago Bulls players, uh, we always made sure that they did some carbohydrate loading the evening before, and we did the, you know, that well-established uh, technique for, you know, for really great world-class athletes to get them at their best with respect to the energetics. We also found that there are a lot of our athletes who are having trouble by guzzling and drinking too much, um, too much Gatorade uh, prior to a, uh, uh, prior to a, say, an NBA game or a boxing match. Well, what happened is they would actually some of them would throw themselves into a low blood sugar condition, and and not and not function well. And so we we've developed uh, for each of these players we some of them we were giving a diluted form of Gatorade, and we wouldn't let them have the full <laughs> the full the full dose Gatorade until they had been uh, maybe uh, playing for 15 minutes and had having their glucose levels tend to droop. In which case we would then give it to them, and it's, you have to you have to really uh, spend a lot of time uh, assessing each person with respect to glucose. Glucose is terribly important, as you know. Yeah, well, I guess the short answer to what you yes, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, for for athletics, uh, particularly actually pre competition, I usually uh, do something similar. I make sure their glycogen levels are full, and then. Uh, whatever their competition is, yep. they I actually try to limit any amount of glucose or carbohydrate before competition uh, because that gives them much greater access to their glycogen levels, their intramuscular glycogen levels. And then, like you said, if if we see that they can only sustain that for 15, 20 minutes of exercise, that's when I would introduce some sort of glucose-based uh, energy replacement because it's much better at getting into muscles than it is the the liver actually. Uh, for glycogen replacement. So yeah, that that's uh, at least that aspect of it. I have a lot of experience in, and, and it's amazing the difference you can see in perform physical performance in the very short time oh, yeah. scales that you can get those um, improvements. But it sounds like with uh, brain chemistry and behavior, uh, we're we're definitely looking at little longer time scales. You know, on the order of a couple months or so before we really see the full effectiveness of uh, these interventions. That correct? It depends on the imbalance. Uh, there's one imbalance that is becoming better known all the time called pyrrole disorders. And uh, about 10% of all people have a pyrrole disorder. 
And what that and, and these people actually improve in just a matter of a couple of days. Uh, about 30% of our violent children and adults uh, have a pyrrole disorder, which which is an inborn uh, inherited disorder that leaves them extraordinarily deficient in zinc and B6. And violent children, uh, I would say, uh, if they had a pyrrole disorder as their major imbalance, uh, the families would call back in two or three days and say, what on earth happened? He's not violent anymore. Um, so wow. so that, that's one imbalance that corrects really quickly. Uh, metal metabolism, if you've got uh, problems with the copper and zinc or toxic mm-hmm. metals, that's uh, about a uh, 60 to 90 day uh, effort. It takes about 60 to 90 days to correct that. If you have overmethylation, that's three to six weeks to, to get it nicely um, improved and maybe six months to get it completely fixed. Undermethylation is the slowest to respond, and very often nothing happens for a month, and they have to hang in there with the treatment, and it might take uh, six months to a year, especially if they have bipolar or, or schizophrenia. It takes about, five, about six months to a year to get the full effect of our treatment for undermethylation. So it depends on the imbalance. Okay. So, I, I mean, just what's really striking me in all of this is just the uh, fine-grained tuning that you can really start to do with your protocols and all the research you've done and learning, you know, exactly what it is, uh, whether it's um, metal metabolism problems or methylation problems, and then being able to just really target that therapeutically, that that to me is just so amazing that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of sitting here awestruck. This is probably one of the, this is one of the podcasts where I've spoken the least just because, you know, this, this is so phenomenal. This is such phenomenal information uh, that, that you're developing and that you're actually putting into therapeutic use already. Um, and you're spread. I, I think we're on the page. Anything. Go ahead. I think we're on the same page, and I think we might have, uh, we might have carried a bit further. And, and really, uh, this all started with Roger Williams back in the late 40s, who developed the whole concept of, of, of biochemical individuality. And then there was the great Abram Hoffer, followed by the great Carl Pfeiffer. Uh, and I, I think that they sort of handed the baton to myself and to others. And, uh, and, and, and I, I think we've, we're now able to do a lot with this. Uh, the book I wrote, I, the title of it is Nutrient Power. And the reason I gave it that name is that that's really the biggest barrier, the use of nutrients for mental and physical, especially mental uh, disorders, is that the, the general public and, 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 and actually doctors just don't believe that nutrients can be so effective uh, in actually helping somebody with a serious condition, like, which might be autism or might be schizophrenia. But the reality is they can be very effective. And, and that's why I called the book Nutrient Power. But that's one of our barriers is to have people realize that we can really accomplish this. We haven't mentioned essential fatty acids. That's something else I want to at least mention. Um, most people in the United States have a terrible diet. Uh, people who have junk food diets, of course, get far too much omega-6, not enough omega-3. We've tested uh, with, with uh, fatty acid experts uh, from different places like the Hormel Institute in Minnesota and others, and uh, we've done a lot of extensive studies of fatty acids. And, and it's true that most of our mentally ill people or most people with depression or anxiety or learning problems, most of them are low in omega-3, and they especially have a need for DHA or, and EPA, uh, which are, are probably the two most, well, they're definitely the two most important omega-3s in the brain because um, there's, there's only, of all the fatty acids in the body, I think there's like 300 of them, there's only four of them that are in high concentration right at synapses. And it's EPA, DHA, and two of the omega-6s, arachidonic acid and DGLA. Well, what's interesting is that there are some people who are intolerant to omega-3 and they need omega-6. It's, it's, it's about, uh, say about one out of every 20 people and we can determine that by testing their urine pyroles. People who have extraordinarily high urine pyroles have, are really low in arachidonic acid, and uh, they, they have unusual mm-hmm. symptoms like they have incredibly dry skin because arachidonic acid is sort of the weather, weatherproofing 
Uh, this omega-6 is the weather, weatherproofing for your skin. Mm-hmm. They also tend, if they gain weight, to have um, they have very odd fat distribution. They're the people who have a really might have really thin necks and wrists and ankles and have enormous amounts of fat around their upper thighs and their midsection. Um, so even even fatty acids, you have to be careful uh, and identify people who there are people who will get worse uh, if they take fish oil. Uh, fortunately, it's a small percent of the population, but uh, that's one of the things we, we always have to test for. And that's why some people get better on primrose oil, which is an omega-6. Um, and those are the people. Those are the ones. I mean, they might be schizophrenic or they might have bipolar disorder um, or they might be people with uh, extraordinary uh, anger and, and temper. Uh, many of them have that situation. And so fatty acids are another area that, that we have to be, be uh, you know, vigilant in and, and sort of evaluate people in. Right, and make the right recommendations instead of just blanket recommendations yep. for everybody. Yeah, you can't just stuff people full of amino acids, vitamins, and minerals and expect them to get better. Uh, what you can do, though, is you can target certain things. If, if you've got, uh, for example, say you've got somebody who is uh, slender and, can't, and is pumping iron and exercising and, and has a, a great diet and, and they still can't put on muscle, uh, very often uh, we're able to help them with that. I mean, you can target uh, nutrient therapy uh, if you have a particular objective. Another objective might be to protect them against uh, cancer, in which case there's a certain set of nutrients we know that will protect them and, and, and help, help them um, reduce the chance of cancer developing. Uh, Alzheimer's disease, same thing. There are things that they can do targeted. But in general, you cannot just uh, try to develop the, you know, an ideal, perfect multiple vitamin mineral amino acid combination. Uh, one size fits all does not work for nutrients, just like it doesn't work for clothing. Right. This is, I'm actually very disappointed that we're at the end of our time. I mean, we could, uh, there's so many questions I have for you now and so many things I, I want to talk about. And we're at the end of the hour. I, it would be great if we could get you back on the show at some point, if your, if your schedule allows it, I'd love to go down some of these points uh, with a little more detail. Um, but it's it, it it's been fantastic having you on the show. I really appreciate you making the time to be on with us. Well, no problem. Uh, uh, we're we're trying to get the word out to the general public as well as to researchers and to medical doctors. And uh, um, um, especially, I think over the summer uh, we have more availability time wise. Uh, but I'd be happy to talk with you again uh, as long as I'm uh, not off in Australia or Norway someplace. Uh, right. We do travel a lot. I'd be happy to talk to you again. Well, that would be a good excuse for me to travel to one of those places and then do the do the interview. <laughs> that would be fine. <laughs> I recommend fjords are beautiful. I recommend Norway. Or, or uh, actually, our next our last training uh, in Australia last April was in a place called Surfers Paradise, and what a beautiful place! Um, I, I recommend that. That's a good. I'm out there for two weeks every year. Last time we had 66 doctors, including several psychiatrists. Um, um, everywhere we start these programs, they just they just grow and grow, and they, we we uh, get more and more doctors every time, year after year. Well, that's fantastic. Kiefer, you, you can you, you can see why I was so excited when you told me we we're going to have Dr. Walsh on the show. Yes, yes, <laughs> I completely understand now. <laughs> so you're. Well, I also uh, enjoy. Oh, I enjoy go. talking to people like like the you are knowledgeable. I mean, you know, you guys know a lot about, about health and nutrition and, uh, it, it makes for a better conversation. Yes. Yes. I very much agree. We would love having you on the show and your book for those interested, which we'll have a link to is nutrient power, heal your biochemistry and heal your brain. Um, and where's the best place, uh, for people to find more information about you, uh, w- which website or URL is best. Uh, it looks like we might have lost Dr. Walsh, but we will make sure and have all of his information on the website. Luckily, we didn't lose him until the end of the show. So we'll, we'll have to send him a thanks for being on the show again. Uh, I hope everybody listens to this episode. And uh, if you know any friends who are in psychology or um, the mental health field, this would be a critical show to listen to and one to definitely follow up on and get some more information from Dr. Walsh. I know Rocky's going to try to go to his Chicago uh, training training camp and 
you know, I was thinking about trying to make that as well, but I definitely want to go to one of his trainings for sure. Yeah, I definitely would agree. And I think I put a qualifying statement out there that, um, just because we spoke about certain nutrients and certain things doesn't mean that gives you current blanche to go out and do it because I think right. without proper supervision and proper evaluation, it could be a recipe for disaster. So I just wanted to stress that one point. Yeah, well, I mean, that sounded like almost the, the topic of the entire conversation. And unless you specifically know what's wrong, it's very hard to just throw a bunch of stuff at it and treat it. Uh, you know, when it, when it comes to the nutrients, particularly the micronutrients, it sounds like you need to be very well educated on exactly what it is you're trying to accomplish. And, and, and you know, after listening to his book, there are definitely um, many, many different pathways. And so it can be quite complex. And so I think that this is not something that you can go and basically do a cookbook with. You know, you have <laughs> right. to actually have somebody knowledgeable and someone who's actually probably worked with Dr. Walsh and trained him to facilitate the right testing and the right, you know, supplementation. Yeah. So we will we'll wrap up this episode with that thought. Uh, you know, seek out experts. That's what I do. That's what Rocky does. Uh, and that's what you should do as well. Uh, so that's another episode of Body IOFM. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And we will talk with you next week. You've been listening to Body IOFM with your host, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance.